0: Hi, I'm Sam Ramji, and this is Open Source Data. This episode stars Jorge Torres, who I got to meet a few years ago as he was building a breakthrough company. Jorge is the co-founder and CEO of MindsDB. MindsDB is a virtual AI database that works with existing data, helping developers build AI-centered apps with their existing expertise. Jorge was a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley, researching machine learning automation and explainability. Previously, he worked for a number of data-intensive startups, most recently with Anish Chopra, the first CTO of the United States. And at that startup, he built data systems that analyzed billions of patient records, and it led to the highest savings for millions of patients. He started his work on scaling solutions using machine learning in early 2008, while working as the first full-time engineer at a company called Couchsurfing, where he helped grow the business from a few thousand users to a few million. Jorge has degrees from the Australian National University in Electrical Engineering and Computer Science and a master's degree in Computer Systems with a focus on Applied Machine Learning. Welcome, Jorge. What's provoking your curiosity these days? You're going full-time building the company and changes are coming a mile a minute and you're responding and dancing. And so there's obviously a lot of work. But outside of the toil, is there anything that's just kind of sparking your curiosity?
1: I I think that even the the very same dynamic elements of it keep you curious. I think that there are so many areas and assumptions that are now being reimagined or even shaken by the fact of the ecosystem that if you were to ask me what, what sparks my curiosity, it's to understand what are the assumptions that are going to hold true in the next 10 years so you can build a business around them. I think that's where most of my curious and creative space is allocated to. So, yeah.
0: I think you were just coming out of Skydeck when I first met you. So I just remember being struck with the idea of the power of just putting the AI right in the database. And you had this, ancient history, you had this amazing affordance, which was sort of an extension to the SQL language, right? just sort of an expressiveness instead of saying select star where foo, which everybody knows being able to start with SQL as the API that every developer knows and saying select start as predicted. And I just thought it was so elegant and so clever. And that was the moment that seized my imagination. I thought, this has to win. This has to exist. I think that was the moment I became a, a convert and evangelist for MindsDB.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. And thanks to you. We've had incredible connections to a lot of the players that we needed to be connected in the industry. And you're right that that abstraction, as simple as it is, still is true to MyCB, and it still is what makes developers like MyCB. So maybe what we've learned so far is if your value proposition is very simple, then that doesn't mean that the implementation is simple. A business has so many different complexities, but your value proposition has to be the simple one so you don't have to iterate too much in it. And even then, how do you synthesize this in the best way? So, from the idea of what people get to the actual product that they get is aligned. I think that is a journey of many companies. But yeah, you're right. That simple abstraction of being able to select from a model to see the future in in one way or to get the output of a model in the data layer is very important. And we believe that's where many organizations are actually making this transition of treating machine learning as a research project, as opposed to what they do with B, which is now being able to treat it as a production system.
0: Yeah, and and I'm starting to realize that the specialization that has been required to do machine learning can't last, right? You can't continue to need deeply specialized experts to do every single project. It's got to be totally normalized. Like any developer has got to be able to say, hey, I want a prediction of this. Even if I don't know the domain, in which it's going to be predicted, but I I just have a simple desire. I want a prediction. It was a pretty deep insight that you all had to come up with such a simple affordance. So I'm I'm super curious if you can take us kind of in the way back machine, because when you were coming up with this, nobody was working on making it simpler. I, I tend to think that there's kind of two big forces in great products in technology. One is let's make the impossible possible. And the other one is let's make hard things easy. And somehow you were kind of doing both, right? You were taking auto ML, auto generation of machine learning models, stuffing them right in the database. And then it's also saying, watch me now, we're going to make it easier. We're going to make this accessible to every developer. So it's obvious in hindsight, but I'd I'd love to have you take us through what were you grappling with to come up with something like that?
1: I think that I loved academia for a lot of the things that it gave me, but also I'm a terrible researcher. Awful. And I and I think that realizing that I was an awful researcher and then realizing that many organizations were going on the path of a, if you're gonna do some form of machine learning, you're gonna to have to build a university within the company felt ridiculous. It felt ridiculous because on the other hand, I think I am a pretty decent developer. And I felt like, well, there's more people like me than there are really good people at research. And that's kind of like the intuition that I had. And luckily, I I was right in in that assumption. My co-founder, Adam, as well, he's a little bit better in research, but also he was like, man, it is impossible that, as you pointed out, that every organization that wants to do this is going to have to build a research institution inside it. And fast forward, the organizations that did, very few ones have something to show for, other than a whole bunch of spin-outs that they sponsored their R&D for. So let's just kind of take it back into that time, and it's, We were really bad at something that we knew a lot of people were probably really bad at too as well. And we were really good at something that we knew a lot of organizations had some material, which is developers. So it just felt that we needed to solve something for us that could help a lot of other companies do it in the way that they've been building software all along.
0: I remember working with a couple of super interesting people to work on MindsDB as a user, right? So we had Alvin Richards, who's a, a fascinating person. He's done just about every job you can do a databases. He's currently VP of product at Elastic. He was starting to work on how do we bring MindsDB into Cassandra, which was a, a super interesting challenge, and it, and it worked, right? It was just it was super early days. I think he was contributing some patches back to the Docker containers for MindsDB and Cassandra, and then got to work with Denise Gosnell. And Denise is a PhD in graph theory and has a lot of experience in machine learning. So, even with all of her expertise, and she's really good at research, she came in and started building out some predictive systems for how we were able to see customer usage of data stacks as AstraDB, right, which is Cassandra at scale. And she said, literally, out of a four week project using MindsDB, saved her two weeks. So, there's an interesting combination of she's great at research and also a good developer and even she found that like this cut the project time in half so there's some very happy medium that you've created in your affordances where it's made it easier but somehow you haven't hidden the power of machine learning underneath it right your ability to do predictive models what have been the trade offs that you've had to make or what have you had to understand in order to enable that power to show up for developers who are in a hurry i don't tend to like the idea that some developers are smart some are dumb it's more like we have different levels of patience and different value for time for how much specialization we can put into one thing so most developers are in a hurry you figured out how to get all of this stuff in the hands of developers in a hurry so what have been the hard trade-offs or what have you had to discover along the way to make that work
1: yeah that, that's a great question and even to that example, I think that when you are also a good developer, you tend to see the world in a very practical way. You see a hammer and you see a nail and you want to use a hammer and a nail. You don't want to understand how you build a hundred more hammers. That's not the problem that you're solving. You want to, okay, give me some plywood and I need to start like putting in hammers to solve building the table that I want to build. So developers are builders. And even if you may have it in you, the researcher, it still is a tool. The developer sees more. That is a means to an end rather than the proper end itself. And I think that the sacrifices that we had to make along the way was there's no way that we can keep everyone happy. Even though be could be helpful, for instance, for the researcher, could be helpful for the data scientist. We needed to decide that when we were doing product development, we were going to focus only on the full stack developer and the people who are fit within the, the software developer world even if some of those things will make a hardcore researcher find friction between what MindCB was doing and what they were doing. Or even if what we're doing doesn't make really the life of data scientists much easier down the product roadmap, even though today or at some point it did. Just because it is easy to get distracted when your initial value proposition can touch multiple personas. But staying true to the developer, I think, was the the decision that we made, and therefore, it comes with some sacrifices.
0: What are some of the differences between what a classic data scientist, just getting into the personas here, what would a classic data scientist want from a machine learning toolkit, right, applying it to whatever data they're looking at versus what a developer is looking for when they're doing applications that just take AI for granted?
1: Yeah, so it really comes from the way that both of them were trained, a data scientist or ML scientist, they're trained as a scientist. Nonetheless, so you, you take a snapshot of your data, and then you're running experiments because it's kind of like experimentation process. And through experiments, you have hypotheses. You experiment. You can conclude that this may work, may not work, given the evidence that you have, which is a snapshot of data. That's fine if you're doing science, but in applied machine learning, where developers or even applied software, where developers live they understand that the systems are like living organisms. Like Data is coming in. They're actually always moving. The data is not a single static thing. So today, say, for instance, you're analyzing transactions in the bank. One second later, you may have 100, 1,000, a million more transactions than what you had before. So understanding the dynamic elements of the problem is what a developer is really good at. It understands that these things eventually need to make it into production. Into production, they're kind of like dealing with this dynamic data sources, and therefore being able to do machine learning in that scope lands more into the the space of real-time machine learning. And therefore it, it comes with a whole bunch of different constraints, things that a data scientist never even thinks of because it's not their domain.
0: Yeah, debuggability comes to mind, right? Observability and iterability, all of those things are are part of the classic production cycle for an application that you might not have to worry about if you're doing machine learning applied to, you know, almost offline analytical processing where you're creating insights, but they're not transactional rates, right? They're not coming at users that are maybe hitting your app a million or a hundred million times a day.
1: Exactly, and for some use cases, For example, forecasting. Forecasting and static data is more of a study of a problem. But in reality, you need to forecast and get the forecast out into a system as well in real time. Because if you think about it, let's say I'm going to forecast if a transaction is going to go beyond a given volume so I can do anomaly detection in real time. If you do anomaly detection as a researcher, you are going to take the data flag when the anomaly happened based on some data set. And then when you give this back, I mean, if this is kind of like about preventing someone from stealing money, that money is long gone. You need the systems to be implemented with the scope of where do you need the output of the machine learning capability? And most times is you need to pipe data into an ML capability and then the output of that data, pipe it back into a system. So it's not just the ability to train and fine tune models, but it's like, how do I take a model join it with real-time data, and then do something with the output of it. And I think that that only happens when you start understanding that, okay, data is something that in in applications gets squared in real time. And therefore, our system just kind of has very well with that workflow.
0: What do you see as the most interesting things that are changing about how people are, are using MindsDB in context to LLMs? You mentioned that you have a lot of exciting hackathons, new events, right? As we engage developers, the most wonderful thing about it is that they surprise the heck out of us. Oh, you're building that? That's often for me going to hackathons or just keeping up on developer news is where I get my biggest excitement because people come up with things that really, really matter to them. But the details are so fine and the ideas that they have are so distinct. But as a platform builder, you have to figure out how to keep the core of the platform stable. So people who came to you a year or two years ago, it keeps working. But now, of course, it's 2023. So this is the huge year of the breakout of the transformer, right, of LLMs, whether it's on your own laptop, um, you mentioned Ollama before, or or open source LLMs like LLama 2, or whether it's just talking to GPT-4, which seems to have an enormous amount of productivity offered for people who are just trying to prototype stuff. So it seems like there's a lot of prototyping, there's a lot of novel activity here. What are you seeing there and how are you working to enable MynsDB as a, as a great prototyping environment for this sort of new breed of AI apps?
1: Yeah, so I think that this goes back into like those things that are assumptions that will hold true in the longer run and assumptions are true in the longer and shorter time periods. One of the ones that, has changed dramatically is the assumption that people needed to train their models with data before they even got started. I think that that was kind of like the premise of most of machine learning before. But the beauty of what has happened in the past two years is that now everyone is aware that you can get started for many machine learning problems with a model that you don't have to train. And perhaps this model, the fact that it was training a lot of data, even data that you don't have, can perform probably better a model that is just trained on your data, only in your data. So starting with a, a model that is pre-trained has changed dynamics and even the complexity of the problem because you, you get started, you can pick a model, and then the next thing is, how do I need to understand how to optimize this model for my use case? Later, you can think of fine-tuning, which is kind of a secondary step, but you can build a system and get it like out of the oven without the training step. That is huge. And that was only happening to a great extent in language. But now we see in time series data, it's happened. We're good friends with the guys from Mixla. They train every single time series data set into a transformer. And these guys know what excellent looks like. They've been winning all the competitions on time series with models that you need to train. And all of a sudden, this thing outperforms everything I have built in the past. And of course, if you fine-tune, then you get the next level of improvement. And I think that's gonna be true for most machine learning capabilities out there. Slowly, they're gonna move into, you don't need to start with the training. Training is something that you do more in the kind of, how do you fine tune rather than train. The other thing that is interesting is that this also opened the door for a lot of prototyping in all levels, from ideation to like actually having things in production. Like the other day, we were having an event here in the office and this guy, he comes to a lot of our meetups and he's like, let me show you what I built. And, you know, he's like talking really fast and he's built all these things and it looks pretty interesting. Honestly, I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. How long did it take you to build it? And I was like, one day. And I was like, wow, that's also pretty cool. And then he says, and I don't even know how to read or write code. And I was like, what the hell? But then at that point I was like, okay, tell me how you built it. So, of course he has something that is a prototype that he can show to an investor and he can show it to some people, that's something that will never be able to make it into production. He's going to need how to like heavily engineer this thing so that it can actually be something that can run for customers, et cetera. So what this is enabling is if you are entrepreneurial or you're even a product manager or if you're someone that doesn't really know or wants to code, you can put together your idea and show it what Figma did to front-end development. And then you can say, okay, this is what I want. And now you can get developers to really build a system that is meant to do what you want to do at scale. So the prototyping step is magical. I I think, again, he's been told all of our meetings, our meetings are for developers, but he doesn't know how to read or write code. He was like everywhere, and it's fascinating how this is playing out. And also kind of validates that, yes, you can start there, but kind of like how you have, even for the front-end development world that happened before, where people were building these front-ends without knowing how to code as a designer or product manager, still, once you want to kind of move these things into an actual production, you still need to have the front-end developer and then connect this to the back-end, et cetera. So we're seeing this a lot, and it's, it's pretty fascinating to watch.
0: Yeah, that leap from prototype to production is pretty hard, and I think it's a lot of what you've spent the last few years hardening MindsDB to be able to do. Right, Because it's one thing to be able to see something at small scale and be really inspired by it. It's another thing to serve production traffic and support SREs and operators in, the, in that process. Does anything stand out for you as a part of the journey that you've been through with MindsDB to continue to keep that operability while also maintaining that front-end developer experience and approachability and productivity?
1: Yeah, I think that we're learning a lot about is really important to get the prototyper involved. I, I think that, that is one area that we want to guarantee that MyZ integrates into the way that it's going to be developed. You know? So there's someone that has the idea, they put something together and then the developers is kinda of like really take that and actually build what needs to be built in terms of the software behind. And of course there's going to be augmentation for every step of the software development anyway, so that the developer focuses only in the crucial parts. And and I think that journey is going to rapidly evolve. But for us, it is important to guarantee that when they're gluing the pieces together into a production system, that they pick an infrastructure player that allows them to plug the thing and then it's the system's responsibility to guarantee that thing runs and operations really well. And that's the role that Mindspeed wants to play into the equation. And we know that people are not going to get rid of their traditional databases. Those are, are here to stay. Those systems are well-organized. They, they work well. And therefore, moving these capabilities of machinery and AI as close to data as possible was about the machine of MindZB. And now it just feels that more than ever before, it fits very well with the story of, well, you can prototype. From prototype, you can kind of build the front end associated to. But once you do that, it, MyZB is the tool that glues AI to the data from any other system that already talks to the back end the way that they t- used to talk to to databases, then they can continue to build from there. I think that for us, it's important to be compatible with the Prototyper, but with the right interface. So it's more like, okay, look, this is all the prototyping tools. How do you take the output of that and guarantee that you distill what is important so you can productionize it? Or a developer can take the output of that and productionize it in a very simple way.
0: Speaking of compatibility, that was, I thought, something really wise you did from the beginning, or at least after the YC days, focusing on open source, right? The ability to take MindsDB into any of these environments where so much of the data that we kind of process in any given application or any given infrastructure, right? It doesn't require you to make a big leap and imagine that you're going to put all of your data into some new specialized monolithic environment in order to get machine learning insights out of it. It's like, no, just connect MindsDB to it, put some MindsDB where your data is, and then you can start to see something really, really cool happen overnight. So I'm really curious in that conception and then today, right, as we've seen so much adoption, so much change and so much drama around open source licensing, especially relative to data and databases. In 2023, how do you think about open source data? And what does that term open source data mean to you?
1: So I think that the problem continues to be the hyperscalers. And I mean, the license issues have to do with not necessarily the non-hyperscaler user. Think like anything from like large organizations to major organizations. But once you get to the Microsoft, the Amazons, et cetera, if they see cake that sells, they're going to try to sell the cake too. And if it's your cake that they're going to have to eat, then they'll eat your cake. So I think that the reaction that the makers have been having is, okay, well, let's constrain our license so that, that doesn't happen. Of course, it is in the best interest of the hyperscalers to create a, a, a boss. and like, well, you know, now you used to be open source. Now guess what? You're not. But I think that Mongo, for instance, like anyone can still go and deploy Mongo for like their own use cases. It's just that it's very beneficial to use Atlas. And on the other hand, would you blame them? Like you have hundreds of engineers, they are built on industrializing open source. So they, they have the skills to take an open source project and wrap it around their ecosystem and kind of like put it there. That battle will continue to happen, in my opinion, where you start with a very permissive license. Eventually, you make enough noise that then now you're understanding that there is a a pie for you. And as soon as that happens, of course, there's going to be people that want a piece of it. And then depending on how you navigate it, then you will be able to exist. So again, Mongo is not going to go anywhere. It's not going to stop being open source. And the same thing for all the other ones. Probably every database has gone through this journey and will go to the journey as soon as they get to the point where... They need to. I don't know when that journey is going to be for MCB. There's also a lot of learnings that the hyperscalers have had into, hey, how do I partner with the maker? And it may be cheaper than trying to do this. I think the guys from Hugging Face are doing a great job and saying like, okay, look, you're going to integrate these things anyway. Let's just work together and let's see how all the money you're going to spend there, maybe you can use that money to actually guarantee that together we grow the pie. And that's still to be defined, but I think that's a, a new aftermath. Now they have enough data to know how much it would cost in one way, because now they're going to start experimenting how much does it cost for them to play ball with the makers. And then at the end, they're going to make a decision as to what was better.
0: <clears throat> that's a great insight. Hopefully, post-open source, we'll start seeing open cloud in a real way. But the economics of the cloud for the cloud providers on raw dollars They're always going to be better off partnering with open source companies than building their own implementation. It's almost always an act of sort of short-term excitement or arrogance to say, oh, we're just going to build out a managed service version of the thing that you built. You know, that might be true today in September in 2023. But as soon as you get to October, if that open source is still moving, now you have to reintegrate it. You have to update it. So one of those old great quotes on open source is it's free, but it's free like a puppy. You still have to raise it. And wouldn't it be better for the company, even in strict economics terms, to get their unit economics of selling you effectively their compute and their storage cycles and their network with you productizing it, with you taking it out to the market? That's always going to be better, right? So I think the question is, can hyperscalers consistently rebuild their cultures and get out of their own way so that they can privilege the ecosystem? Because that's going to bring them actually much higher margins much lower cost of customer acquisition and a lot more customer satisfaction right and community goodwill which i think can't be underestimated that's a that's a strong way to keep your your business future proof right is to make sure that more people say i love this provider than the ones who say this provider is kind of a thief and a robber but i have to put up with them
1: 100% 100% i think that you and i see the same way there and also like if you think of like the evolution of open source even early on you had like Microsoft completely against open source. You know, they were like in a battle with it. And now we realize, okay, well, no, let's play ball and we can make a lot of money. So Azure makes a ton of money in open source. But they're like, okay, who makes Postgres? Who are like the biggest communities? Let's bring these people in. I, I think that people transform because the numbers eventually allow you to compare what happened with all the effort that we did fighting open source. Yeah. What happened with all the effort that we did trying to replicate what they had internally. Versus partnering with them. And yeah, I think that it's a curve that if if you were to kind of like see friendliness over time, you can see friendliness kind of like going up and up, even from the hyperscalers and the the trillion dollar companies.
0: Yeah, Microsoft's done a nice job of that. Something you mentioned earlier that I'd love to dig in a little bit more is Nixla. So I got the opportunity to attend the first MindsDB conference earlier this year. Congratulations again. It's been a tremendous 2023 for you after having worked incredibly hard on this project and in this product and this company for many years. I'm sure some people are coming to 2023 saying, oh, you know, MindsDB, Jorge, you're an overnight success. <laughs> Turns out it takes wow. a lot of sleepless nights to get there, right?
1: You've been behind the scenes here as well. You helped us kind of prepare for the different pitches, understand how this game is played in the Bay Area. So there's one thing of like having a product that makes sense being able to turn that product into a business, then being able to play the uh, venture capital game because it's it's nonetheless like rules, et cetera. And there's all these different learning things. And I will always be grateful to you for being always kind of like a sounding board. And also, you know, in all the conversations that, that we've had, you've been super candid. And that level of honesty has got us to the point where we are. So yeah, it's not an overnight success. It's like a, it's a, five-year overnight success. I've oh. seen the oh. struggle.
0: And now I see you turning around and paying it forward. It helps to have friends because we all get things wrong all the time. So hopefully we can share our failures and build successes together. And then new ideas got launched already this year at MindsDBCon. So this idea of Nixtla N-I-X-T-L-A, building a transformer built on time series data, which is so mind-boggling because the dimensionality that most of us were aware of transformers of being effective in was language right? we call it a large language model but what would a large time series model look like but they declared it at your conference they said we're going to go and create the largest open data set of time series data that anybody could see so that you could train your own new open transformer on it and they were going to train their own open model on it so it sounds like you've gotten a chance to play around with it i'd just love to hear you riff a little bit about kind of what gets you excited about Snixla and about time series transformers
1: yeah, no, and, and I think that it goes back to we were seeing this trend where all of a sudden companies shrank their time to value if they could start with a pre-trained model. And then so much data in the world is time-series data, so much data. Even data that people don't know is time-series, it's time-series. So long as it's moving over time, it is time-series data. Whether you store it or not, that's a different thing, but you know, as soon as you realize, you find even ways to store it and whatnot. So that's one But then for having a pre-trained model on time series data, it even enabled the fact that you don't have to store all the the historical data. You can just take the model and start passing data as it comes to, and then you get out the forecast. So you don't even have to have the the historical data. All you need to have is the data at that given instance, and you can pass it to the model and you get an output. It's mind-blowing. And I think that... When they said that they were gonna do that, of course, it sparked our attention because we knew that trend was going to be going back to assumptions. That assumption will be true for the next five, ten years. Pre-trained models that then you can kind of like fit to your like so they fit like a glove later down the road, is the way to go. And they just opened that to a whole new domain, as you said. And I think that not only in a whole new domain, but in terms of enterprise data is one of very common type of data that people have. And also, in terms of value that people extract from this is very high, too, because the better you are at forecasting, the better you are at kind of like predicting what's going to happen. And if it's a data-driven approach, you're going to be making really good decisions or much better than intuition sometimes. So for us, it was super important.
0: It seems like a really sort of neat ecosystem gift to show up for all of your developers, right? Because we have LLMs, which help us turn unstructured data, by which we usually mean text video, audio, of course, like all data has structure. So it's a little funny to call anything unstructured. But classically, MindsDB was looking at rectangular data, looking at SQL data, is looking at denormalized data, right? Wide columns like in Cassandra, which tends to be numerical, right? It's following some specific schema. It's got information that's related, but a lot of it is numerical. So being able to map the variation in that numerical data over time and getting some kind of insight from a, a time series transformer blows my mind I, I feel like i need to go and play with it and learn from other developers what's possible but it's, it seems like a, a great serendipity which is the kind of thing that when you're building a, a great company when you're playing it with an open mentality when you've got a positive some mindset like cool stuff just kind of shows up like that
1: yeah and, and i think that this positive sum- is intrinsic to open source in many ways. It doesn't really make sense for you to start an other open source project when there's a really good open source project that does it. It just makes sense that you integrate. I think that in the closed source mentality, you're like, okay, well, someone is doing something. I need to add this feature because it's not a game of integrating. And to the point of Nixla, we've been friends just because of the full open source ecosystem. And then since we since they told us that this is what they're going to do, our mind was not like, oh, let's build that. It's more like, oh, wow, this unlocks a piece of the puzzle for us Let's make sure that we integrate in the best way possible. And it it comes with that. It is kind of like embedded within the mindset of the open source, which is beautiful.
0: Looking forward, maybe three to five years, what do you imagine to be the next sort of unlocks? Right, What are the things that would be powerful for the developer experiences as you see it? Right, I know it's a very hard question because just six months ago, we wouldn't have imagined a, a time series transformer. But as you look at the problems that, Developers are trying to solve. You've got a privileged position sitting where you do with Minds DB and bringing different problems developers together with the hackathons that you're supporting. What do you think is going to be transformative to developer experience over the next few years in this domain of easy to use, easy to consume AI and the data?
1: I, I think that maybe the foundational. Models, if you may, they're going to continue to evolve, get better and better. That's certainly something that will happen. Some of them will run out of data to, to feed on. There's going to be at some point where like, okay, they can't get any better just because there's no more data, but they're just as good as they can get. And then again, there's going to be new technologies on how to then find other ways to optimize either on cost and efficiency, on throughput. And then maybe there's going to be some other breakdowns or breakthroughs uh, to, to keep moving the frontier of understanding there. But there's going to be selected players on each phase that will be competing for that. I think that there's going to be also the open source can take a lot of these learnings and then kind of shortcut the R&D for all of this happen and then open source just says, okay, that worked, let's go this way. Yeah, And I think that will continue to be the way that this evolves. Now, for developers, on the other hand, they, they will take that for granted that improvements will happen there. What they would like to see is how do I make sure that I is still relevant? So if I start with, I don't know, Time GPT version 1, as soon as TimeGPT version 2.0, I can do that. Or if I were to do uh, OpenAI or Filecoin kind of this, that I can keep up with the latest without having to reinvent all my infrastructure. That's one. And then on the other hand, anyone that has done some sort of machine learning in an organization, understand that it's just a whole bunch of little problems. Not that like one problem that involves AI or machine learning, what is happening now is that they're starting to play with low-hanging fruit, and then there's a lot of low-hanging fruits out there that they need to be solving. And once they do, they start chaining them into like more complex and more complex. So what we will see is the same thing that happened with software and companies. A lot of things that were done manually and, and not in a computer, so slowly they started moving things into uh, systems, and there were like systems that aggregated all of that, ERPs, CRMs, et cetera, which was like, an aggregation of many different tiny problems that, that some of them did. So, the same thing will happen. In AI. You will have the first ones, and eventually those systems build upon those ones and those ones until AI becomes ubiquitous. You know, you don't even know what has or what doesn't happen. They all have an element of it.
0: Yes, yeah, like going from imperative processing to some sort of implicit cognitive processing. I'm much more a developer than I am a researcher, I'm not a researcher at all. I'm going to AWS SageMaker maybe six months ago, just taking a look at what was happening, took another look about three months ago. And the claim to fame hadn't changed much. It was like, look at all of these models. You can pick, you can run any of these models and there's dozens. And I thought to myself, what model do I want? How am I going to get educated enough to know which model I should apply to which type of data? Like, that's just not me. What I want to be able to do is have something more of a developer affordance to say, hey, I'm in the design phase. I would like to be able to point you at my data. You tell me what model to use. Also, don't give me a name for the model. You can leave it in the configuration file. If I care, I'll look at it. But please just give me a better result. I want a recommendation. I want a prediction. And then please just map that to the right model for the domain of data that you perceive. So I think the direction that my sense of MindsDB is to be able to do this very, very hard work underneath the hood to be able to give me access to more capability as it gets built by the open ecosystem.
1: The cool thing is that we've been around for some time now that we know the patterns we just know how the pattern exists and with a new technology how that pattern will reflect we have a good intuition of course we cannot predict exactly but it also breakthroughs have happened in stages as well you have the static web you have the web applications and then mobile web so we knew the things that, that were happening in those transitions I think that being able to extrapolate the patterns is probably the exercise that a lot of us are doing and you included. I totally agree.
0: One interesting question that was offered to me some time ago was what's a question that you should have been asked, but haven't been. And I'm curious to know what is the question that you're most provoked to answer? What is it that I should have asked, but I didn't today?
1: Yeah, no, I think that for me, it's the cognizance of the dangers that, that this no revolution or evolution of the web has. And I think that right now we can be players in the space, but also play responsibly. And I think that starts with having open conversations about this. Like every single organization that is working on AI right now or implementing AI to some scale understands that there are implications. And if they don't understand, it's good to ask ourselves, okay, what are the implications of what I'm doing? And I think that Creating that space as a space for conversation where the answer is not like, oh, it's going to be all great. Uh, It's more like, yeah, well, this has some implications and these implications are serious implications. Of course, not every single job will be automated. There will be new jobs that will be created, but of the jobs that are going to be automated, what is the timeframe? What is the timeframe for the people that are there so that if we are like vocal about this, then everyone starts doing something about moving these people into like the places where they're gonna be new jobs or the jobs that right now are not being fulfilled. So that there's like the proper pastor, like I don't know if you you've had a chance to sit down on a Waymo recently, but man, I sat there and I was like, this experience is fantastic. Fantastic. They nailed it. It's the apple of self-driving car. Now on the other hand I was thinking, Jesus, like all of the people that rely on driving cars as their living hood. They'll be out. There's no way that they can be better than this by by far. Yeah. I I think in a city like San Francisco, there's so many that live on this. And and i think worldwide. Of course, these changes are not going to happen in a year, two years, three years, four years. Let's say we have five years to start a massive re rolling business out. Five years is a decent amount of time for people to start thinking what do they need to do? Let's say you give two years to kind of plan where they need to land, and then three years to train them. They're going to be fine. If we start talking about this four years from now, they are screwed. And and I think the same thing with customer service representatives, et cetera. So so I think having these conversations is like there's gonna be changes. And some of these changes cannot happen just like this. They can't, just because there's infrastructure that needs to be put in place, there's regulation, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But but they will. And we have time. It's just that we don't have 20 years. We have five years for some of them, we have seven years, we have three, four years. And it is crucial that we have this. So how do we create this space? Is there a place where all of us entrepreneurs can sit down and say, these are the risks that I see that are happening. And I think that it's important to have that conversation.
0: What is one piece of advice you'd give our audience of developers, data engineers, founders, and CTOs, because they've certainly been inspired to listen to the growth of MindsDB and the hard work you put in, but also the inspiration that's possible. What's one piece of advice that you might offer those folks as they're thinking about the future of AI and data? Yeah, I think that first, think open source.
1: I think that is one of the best mindsets that you can adhere if you're kind of like getting into this world or already into this world. Uh, as we spoke throughout this conversation, there are so many intrinsic elements of it that make you a good company just because of the way that it already has evolved into the second one is surround yourself by people that can be very candid when you need candid advice. I mean, going back to the point, you have been there when we needed some form of advice, but your advice hasn't been like, oh yeah, yeah, all good. I no, it's more like, dude, there's two things that you need to know, and it's this and this from my expertise, you know, and, and doing that is the only way that you can leapfrog and avoid a lot of problems on the road. That's
0: the way that I see it. That's awesome. Jorge, thank you so much for your generosity of time. I know you're incredibly busy. I wish you and MindsDB continued success. I don't think my wishes are required. I think it's going to succeed just because of the inspiration in the ecosystem you've built. But congratulations on an amazing year so far.
1: Thank you so much, Sam. And again, thank you for your help. Always.
0: I'm backstage with our executive producer, Audra Montenegro, to cover her takeaways from the conversation. Audra, I thought that conversation with Jorge was profound. He's so humble. He's built so much technology, along with his co-founder, Adam, and a legion of other folks now in the last few years. But you'd never know it from how he presents the ideas. It's just all very clear. It's very developer-centric. And I think the piece that really caught my attention was this sense that we have a responsibility to all the people whose lives are going to change based on the ai apps that we're going to build and there's something important for all of us to participate in there what stood out to you
2: what stood out to me sam was in the beginning how he said he wants to change minds about machine learning so thinking of it as a production system versus a research project and treating systems like they're living organisms. Then later on, he also said, okay, the future of developers is staying relevant without having to reinvent the infrastructure and how breakthrough happens in stages. The power is going to come from extrapolating different patterns. Everything that they're doing at MindsDB seems to kind of help transition from prototype to production. And as long as everybody does their work responsibly and create space for those conversations around implications, then I think we can solve for a lot in the future. I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of a lot of the experimentation that people are allowed to have, not even knowing how to code or read it. I thought that was a, a nice plug as well.
0: That was pretty astonishing. I and mean, one of the things we have seen is a lot of use of LLMs, notably ChatGPT, but also Copilot from GitHub and Cody from SourceGraph. Uh, and of course, SourceGraph, whose uh, co founder, Biang Leo, we interviewed here not too long ago. You could just know what you want the computer to do and say that and have the system produce the code. And then with MindsDB, you can know you, what you want the computer to be able to predict. And it will figure out how to do that, right? So this AI-assisted application development is taking on a, a whole new frame of reference for me. I never imagined how much development could get done just because you want it to.
2: It's impressive. We're moving at really fast pace nowadays.
0: Yeah, today is the slowest day in the future history of AI. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well thank you sam and thanks to our audience for tuning in
0: yeah and if you like the show please subscribe and give the podcast a five-star rating on your favorite platform and a special thanks to the caspian studios team to our producer alexa minter for program management vita Muri and kyle ruska for audio and visual engineering Callan turnbull and yaroslav Zukarchenko, as well as creative producer landon pontius and a huge thanks to DataStax for sponsoring the show as they become real-time AI company and foster the ecosystem. Thanks again for listening. Catch you on the next episode of Open Source Data.